about the way he preached when he came. Now, he's saying that, I think, because he wants them to use him as an example. They knew exactly how he was. They were there. He converted them. And if they'll think back, they'll see a good example for themselves as to how they should be. So, uh, he had said in 1 and 2 that he preached with boldness. In 3 and 4, that he didn't preach from error, impurity, deceit, or men-pleasing. And now he's going to say some other things about his preaching in 5 through 8, if somebody wants to read that. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, neither from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles, as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. So Paul really is dealing a lot with his motives and his methods when he comes there and preaches. And he says it, he didn't do what in verse 5? He Yeah. Now, what, why would a preacher be tempted to flatter? Well, if you tell people what they want to hear, then they're going to hear a Yes. To try to get people to like you, sometimes you'll tell people how great they are insincerely, just trying to get them to think you're cool. Paul didn't do that. Paul wasn't into trying to falsely brag on people. That wasn't his uh, idea. What else did he not do in verse 5? Wasn't greedy. Yeah. Now, what would... Uh, how would a preacher be greedy? Support money. Yeah. Like, you know, because people sometimes pay preachers, and sometimes people can preach for that reason... How would they know whether Paul was greedy in his heart or not? Because he always felt from his heart and he didn't Yeah, that's true. Although, have you ever seen anybody that really seemed sincere and after a long time realized they really weren't? That's happened to me before. Well, I really thought somebody was really, really sincere and really doing what they were doing from the heart and then eventually find out their whole motives and their whole life is something else. I think that may be why Paul here in verse 5 says God is witness. Because God is the one who knows for sure what Paul's motives are. No human being can perfectly discern someone else's motivation. So he says God is my witness. Now, he wouldn't say that lightly. You call God as a witness. You better be telling the truth. And uh, so he's making it more forceful, what he's saying, by saying that. And then in verse 6, what did he not, uh, what motive did he not have in preaching? Yeah, because it's easy to try to impress people. Try to gain honor and prestige. Try to prove you're somebody. That wasn't what Paul was concerned about. He could have been. And he could have, as an apostle of Christ, he could have sort of thrown his weight around. But that was not what he did. Uh, instead, in verse 7, this is kind of interesting, what does Paul compare himself to? That is kind of an odd comparison. You know, Paul is like a nursing mother. Well, what, what did he mean by that? How was Paul like a nursing mother? 
difficult when you have, you know, new babies. you got to take care of them and help nurture them and bring them up, you know, and that's what he was doing. They were new Christians, so he was looking out for them and being like a mother figure to them. Exactly. It's a good figure for those purposes. And you think about the kind of attitude a, a mother has toward her nursing child. How does the mother feel about her child? Oh, man. I mean, it's just almost proverbial. The love of a mother for her, her infant child is so strong. Almost, I don't know if you'd call it an instinct, but there's a very strong attachment. Paul's saying, that's how attached I was to you guys. Now, that's amazing because Paul wasn't been there for very long, just a few weeks before he got run out of town. And yet still, he had the same tender care, the same concern, the same love as a nursing, a nursing mother would have for her children. That's really amazing. And one of the things that I get out of 1 Thessalonians more than anything else is the deep love and strong bond that Paul felt toward these brethren. And it really makes me think about my attitude toward those people I'm trying to help. Because sometimes we sort of, do you know what it means to like keep a professional distance? Like you're a doctor or something. They, they probably teach you in doctor school, you know, not to get too attached to your patients. Because if you do that, I think they'd probably say you wouldn't be objective in the treatment, and then what if one of them dies and you get really sad and all that. So you kind of don't try not to have feelings for them. Well, that's not the way Paul was. <laughs> he wasn't just a professional preacher at a distance telling them what to do, but not getting personally involved. Paul was attached like a nursing mother. And so he says in verse 8, that he not only gave them the gospel, what else did he give them? Yeah. He lived for them. He gave himself to them. That's really strong and really powerful. Paul didn't hold anything in return. You know, Paul didn't just tell them the, the, the message. Paul gave them himself. Do you have comments and thoughts on this section? I think that's part of the reason, in my mind, that he uses the um, nursing mother, because that's what a nursing mother does, is she has to give of herself, literally, for this child to live. And you begin to appreciate that when you realize, in order for the child to live, this is what must happen. And Paul... Yeah, he was willing to to give himself for the life of these these uh, babies, which is really what they were. Right? He cared about them deeply and would do anything for them. Okay. This is kind of to get back to the money thing, but when did Paul make tents? Was this before he wrote the letter, or was it after? With Aquila and Priscilla, it was probably about the time he right before that he wrote the letter, but after he'd been in Thessalonica. He probably writes the letter when uh, Timothy and Silas came with some support to Macedonia, uh, to rather to, to Corinth, and he, he quit making tents and preached all the time. But he probably did that over and over. I mean, here he's going to say in the next section he was working with his own hands. So evidently, maybe when he was there too, he supported himself on making tents. I take it that that was pretty common for him to do. Good question. Other questions and comments? Okay, 9 to 12. For you 
recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so it is not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved towards you, believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a, as a father with his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay. So in 9, he was working night and day. What I think he's saying is that he worked to support himself as well as working in the gospel. Why would he have worked to support himself in this verse? Yeah, he didn't want to have to make them pay him, so he supported himself and preached too. So he's just giving totally of himself. And, and that shows you how much he cared about. And I think he's sort of laying the groundwork for some things he's going to say later in the letter. Letter Later he's going to be encouraging them to make sure they work and don't just take advantage of other brethren's generosity to them. Well, he's an example of that. So Paul will sometimes say things that will actually lay the groundwork for other things he'll say later on, and he's doing that several times in this section. He says, you know how upright I behave myself, in verse 10, and you know that we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you. I like that each one. Paul cared about every one of them individually, but then in 11, what does Paul compare himself to? A father. <laughs> Paul, uh, Paul changes figures uh, frequently. He goes from being a mother to a father. Now, I think there's a reason why he switches to the father figure here. Well, how is he like a father? A leader. A leader, a... Discipline. Like discipline. Discipline. No. He says that he was exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would have sent. So, I mean, he was just like there for them, you know, like there to be their support group, basically. Like uh, fathers are supposed to be for their sons. Yes. There's still a word or two that I think would be good for us to use in that. What's the father's... I don't know if you think of it this way. What do you think the father's biggest responsibility is for his children? Training and teaching. Training and teaching. I think that's exactly right. I don't think we think about it that way. If I would ask most of you without this passage, I bet most people would say discipline. Like, spanking. Well, that's part of it. Uh, that's certainly, the Bible teaches that. But if you look at Proverbs, it talks so much about discipline, it talks five times as much about teaching and instructing and guiding. And that's what Paul was for these Christians. He was their teacher. He was guiding and instructing. He was encouraging and sometimes kind of chastening and chiding, trying to get them to grow. So he was a mother in terms of his fond affection and, and, and just giving of himself. He was a father in terms of his you know, instruction and admonition to them. And uh, he wanted them to do what was right. So that's how Paul was when he came. That's a pretty full statement of Paul's, um, you know, preaching methods and manner. It's a great passage. It's a great passage for a preacher to look at to see how he should be. Do you have comments and questions about this section? Um, maybe, I don't know. I think that Paul was like this whole section using the father and the mother 
um, about how, as a church, like in, in more passages, the church is compared to a family. And to me, I don't know, like just looking at it like now, these verses tie into that a lot. Sure. Like showing how like the older members need to, to like Paul knows more, uh, and so he's like admonishing them and like teaching and training as a father and mother would. Absolutely. You have a lot of those figures throughout the Bible. You know, we gain many fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters, and so forth, Jesus says. And he tells Timothy to treat the older men as fathers and the younger men as brothers. And so you just got tons of that. We are a family, and I think that's very much the uh, figure he's using. Other observations? Yes. So I guess in verse 9, he's also... You know, comparing himself to being a brother up there. He them. So. Yes. Like a really yes. wide spectrum. Of. I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. So he's their mother, their brother, and their father. Not easy to do, but uh, in Christ all things are possible. So, yeah, good point. Other observations? All right, look at 13 to 16. Somebody want to read that? And we also thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is that word in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, who you suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile all men. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also keep up their sins to limit to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Okay, so he, he's doing the same thing in this chapter he'd done in chapter 1, just in a uh, broader spectrum. In chapter 1, verse 5, he talked about how the gospel came, and in 6 to 10, how they received it. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it was how the gospel came, and in 13 to 16, what we just read, it's how they received it. And how is it that they received the gospel? They welcomed it as what? Word of God. The Word of God, which, that's a good thing they welcomed it that way, because that's what it was. They accepted it for what it really was, not man's Word, but God's Word. That makes a big difference when we understand that this is God's message, and it's God's message that has a work to do. It transforms a person. It performs its work in you who believe. So, you know, he says, this. you accepted it for what it is, and it's the message that, that changes you and transforms you. And once they accepted it, what happened? They became imitators. And their imitation of uh, the other churches led to they're not only imitating their behavior, but they imitated them in what other aspect? Suffering, persecution, <laughs> because that's what happens when we start following the Lord. There are a lot of people who don't like that, and they started persecuting. And he says, really, this is consistent with what we see a lot of other people suffering. Now, it's not just these Thessalonians who are being persecuted. 
In this passage, who else do you see that was persecuted? There are at least three other groups. What did you say? I said all the churches. Yes, the other churches. And Jesus and the prophets. So you've got all these different groups. For a long time, if you're faithful to God, you're persecuted. So they shouldn't be surprised that when they start following the Lord, they're persecuted. But these who are persecuting them will fill up the measure of their sins in verse 16 and wrath will come on them. There is a concept, especially in the prophets, of, of like having a cup that you fill up with sin. You know, as you sin more and more, that cup just fills up with sin. When it finally gets to the brim, God sends a cup of wrath and makes them drink it and punishes them. I think that's the idea. They are increasing their sins to the point that God's wrath is going to come down and punish them. Comments and questions? Um, maybe, I think it's a good lesson for us because um, there are so many passages in the Bible that talk about Christian suffering and stuff like that. But then like, we think today on how blessed we are that we don't suffer. But I think a lot of the reason why we don't suffer is because we're not going to the extent that they were. Like, if we maybe pushed ourselves way more and, like, tried so much harder, we might be suffering more. That's a very good point. Um, you know, compromises can kind of keep the suffering at bay, and that may be sometimes why we don't. I mean... I don't think, you know, most people are going to be tortured and burned at the stake or something today for preaching in the U.S., but we'd probably get a whole lot more ridicule and life would be more unpleasant for us if we were more bold in our preaching. And if we were taking the gospel all over the world like we ought to be, there'd be a lot of places where we'd get the physical persecution also. I mean, I don't know. How would you be with that? Can you imagine marrying some guy who decides to go to some place where it's dangerous to live and he might you know, actually get killed? What would you think about that? Would you want that? You know, I, I mean, I, I remember uh, a discussion several years ago with some young guys, some, some teenagers or guys in their early 20s, that were asking, they said, you know, I mean, should we, should we consider that? What if we were going to some place where we were more than likely to get killed? Would that be would that be the best thing for us to do? We talked about it. It's a good good conversation. But I mean, that may happen, you know, and it may happen in this country. And if we're not even willing to suffer ridicule, what's going to happen if it gets more difficult? I think this constant theme of persecution needs to really toughen us in, because it's not. I mean, you know, it's pretty likely, just given the history in, in the Bible, that sooner or later we're going to face more severe persecution than we do, and if we were more faithful, we probably would already. Other, other comments? Other thoughts? Um, sure. I think he is in verse uh, 15 and 16, he's talking about people who persecuted Jesus and the prophets. Yes. And... Um, he's saying that the people in Thessalonica are going to be persecuted as well. And then he says that God will bring wrath upon them. 
and so he's like encouraging them in the fact that God's going to bring vengeance on them just like he fought on them in such a yeah, the persecution is temporary. I mean, think about it. it I, you may have felt bad somewhere along the line being ridiculed and, you know, laughed at for being a Christian. Well, would you have liked to trade places with the person who was laughing at For good? Maybe right then it would have made you feel more comfortable, but if you had to stay traded, wow, one day the tables are going to be turned in uh, great measure. And so, yeah, it's just temporary. God will, God will take care of it. He will bring justice to pass. Good point. Other thoughts? All right, this really ends what I consider the first major section of the book. The next major section is still talking about Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians, but particularly his efforts to come to them or to send someone to them and to find out how, how they were doing. Um, and, and I really think in many ways this is my favorite section of the book. If you think you see the relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians in this first section, where do you see this section? You really see Paul's heart and attitude. So, chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are glory and joy. Alright, so Paul says that he, he'd been taken away from them. Remember, he had to leave because of persecution. And how did that make him feel? What did he want? To see them more eagerly. Yeah, man, he really missed him, and he was so eager to come and see him. He hadn't been there for a very long time, and yet this attachment had grown so strong that it really made him so eager to see them. In fact, he tried to come more than once, and what had happened? Satan had hindered him. Yeah, Satan had and uh, he's frustrated by that because, I mean, he really wanted to see them. How did he feel about them? What were they to him? Children. There was children. Yeah, they were like his pride and joy, we'd say. You know, he just loved them so much. He couldn't wait to see them. He longed for them. That kind of attachment is really impressive. I mean, I'm one of these kind of guys. Uh, and I, I, I'm working on trying to do better with this. But, but you know, uh, my, my general way of, of dealing with things is I'm very involved where I am. When I move on, well, the past is the past. Now I'm somewhere else. You know, and I remember even, you know, churches that, you know, I was a part of, churches that I was preaching at. When I moved somewhere else, it'd be kind of like, okay, well, that was fine. And now I'm here. But that's not all the way Paul felt. And he hadn't been in, in Thessalonica probably more than, I don't know, two, three, four months at the most. And yet he, he couldn't stand being away from them. He, he thought about them all the time. They were just so important to him. And just having that level of love after sh such a short time of being with them. Well, that tells me one thing. They were they have a more open, close relationship than we do. I mean, in a lot of churches, you could be there for, you know, 20 years, and you'd hardly know each other. 
You know, and it, it just tells me that Paul cared so much that even when he wasn't seeing them, he really deeply longed for them. Comments and questions on this section? Um, I think when it says that Satan stopped them from coming, I think that kind of leads me to believe, at least, that they were doing everything and more within their power to go keep him. And it wasn't just, you know, he could have said, well, the men of the country wouldn't let us come see it. He said Satan. So there had to be quite a bit of trouble getting back. Would you even think Satan would have a role in this? That's kind of interesting to me. I don't think very often we really even think much about Satan's involvement with things. Uh, And this passage is sort of striking to me in that, that actually Paul realized that the thing that stopped him from coming, Satan Satan put a stop to it. I don't know exactly what happened even. Uh, But we we would not attribute much to Satan. But we're really fighting against evil you know, forces that are greater than what we are. And uh, Paul saw that. Paul had a lot deeper concept of the role of the, you know, celestial and demonic world, I think, than what we do. Other comments? Alright, look at chapter 3. Let's see what Paul decided to do since Satan had stopped him from coming. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, you should bear it no longer. We were willingly left behind at Athens and Lyceum. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. But no one be moved by these afflictions. And you yourselves know that we are destined to this. So when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer afflictions, just as it is from the past, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. So, Paul just couldn't stand it any longer. What did he decide to do? Yes, send who? He decided to send Timothy from where? From Athens. Now, go back and look at Acts 17 again. This is really, I really like this. And there's some points we can make off of this that I think are really impressive to me at least. Acts 17 is where in the first nine verses Paul had preached in Thessalonica and in verse 10 they had to send uh, him and Silas away by night to Berea. And in Berea in verse 10 he spent some time in the synagogue many believed but then verse 13 the Jews of Thessalonica found out that Paul was in Berea and they came down there and ran Paul out of Berea. And the brethren had to send Paul out uh, uh, by the sea. In verse 14, Silas and Timothy remained, and Paul went to Athens, and then asked for Silas and Timothy to come to him in Athens. So, after Thessalonica, Paul goes to Berea for a little while until he gets run off from there, and then he goes down to Athens, and Silas and Timothy come to him in Athens. Now look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And you tell us about how these guys were worshippers of all these various gods, and they actually thought Paul was telling them about two new gods. Uh, they thought that he was, he was preaching Jesus and preaching the resurrection, and those were two gods that he was adding to their repertoire of gods. And so Paul preached that famous sermon about that altar to the unknown God. He said, I want to tell you about that unknown God. But once Paul preached that, 
in verse 32, uh, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Now, Athens seemed to have been one of the most difficult places Paul went. I mean, people always like to hear new things, but there's not a record of many people being converted in Athens. I think he gets more ridicule in Athens. Now, you know about Athens even outside the Bible, don't you? I mean, what do you know about the city of Athens? Wasn't it really rich and artsy and artsy and yeah, they don't know. They hold games in Athens, I'm not sure. They might have. What else were they known for? The arts and the market. Yeah, they did have that the market there. Wisdom, philosophy, intellect. Remember some of the guys that were associated with Athens? Who were some of those? Is it Wordlock, Socrates, and Plato, and Aristotle, all kind of in that Greek Athenian culture? They were the intellectuals. They were the wise people. How did the gospel sell among the intellectuals usually? Yeah, a lot of times they're too proud to listen to it. They, they think they know it. And so this was really a tough city for Paul. You know, this was more difficult for him than the other places had been. Now look back at 1 Thessalonians 3.1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, that is, we just couldn't stand leaving the Thessalonians alone any longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone and, and to send Timothy. Paul was willing to, to be at Athens alone and even give up Timothy even though it was a hard place to be, I'm sure he really wanted Timothy's presence. But he just was so concerned about how the Thessalonians were doing that he had to send Timothy up there to find out. Doesn't that tell you something about how much Paul loved them? You know, because if you had a Timothy around, you'd want to keep him to yourself. You wouldn't want to send him away, especially when you're in a place like Athens, where you're not getting much support and a whole lot of ridicule. Isn't that impressive? Now think about Timothy. Remember what we know about Timothy. Which journey did Timothy start accompanying Paul on? And which journey is he on here when he writes this book? Nope. Second? Second? Yeah, still on the second. And uh, so he's picked up Timothy, I would assume, maybe a year before or something like that. I don't know exactly. Now, what do you know about Timothy? How old was Timothy? Early age, like 20 or something. How do you know he was pretty young? He talks about his youth and first and second. Yes, what does it say about his youth in first Timothy? Don't let anybody look down on you because you're so young. And what does it say about his youth in 2 Timothy? Flee, flee youthful lusts. Now here's what's going to amaze you. Do, you. do you realize how long after 1 Thessalonians Paul wrote 1 Timothy? 
like 13 years. And he wrote secondarily like maybe 15 years after he wrote First Thessalonians. Now, if Timothy was still young, 13 years later, 15 years later, young enough that Paul's saying, don't let anybody look down on you for being so young, and uh, flee from youthful lusts, I'm wondering, how old was Timothy here? Yeah! I mean, I don't think anybody's going to write to me and say, uh, you know, don't let anybody look down on you for being so young, right? <laughs> you know? And they haven't done that in a while. <laughs> uh, I don't know how old Timothy was when Paul wrote those things to him, but what if we say he was... Yeah, Mike? What was the lifespan back then? Well, maybe not a, a lot different than for us. Than maybe a little shorter, but not a whole lot um, And so, let's say he was 30 when Paul said, don't let anybody look down on you for being so young. I mean, I can't imagine he was 40 when Paul wrote that. It'd be more like 30 at the max, 13 years before. <laughs> it'd have been 17. When Paul called him our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, he said, with the strength that it encouraged you as to your faith. Can you imagine, say, a 17-year-old Timothy getting sent up to Thessalonica to really strengthen and help those brethren in faith, those new Christians? Some of you are 17. You know, I think one of the things that bugs me is that we have this concept that when you're young, you're not supposed to be spiritually mature. You're not supposed to have responsibility. You're not supposed to be spiritually minded enough to really do important work in the cause of the Lord. Paul really believed in Timothy. He trusted him. I guarantee you he wouldn't have sent him back to Thessalonica if he didn't think he could have really strengthened those brethren because he loved them so much. And, uh, you know, I mean, we kind of live in this culture where you're supposed to be a kid and not be responsible and just have fun and do whatever you want to until you're 18 or 21 or 24 or something like that, and then you'll be an adult. I don't like that. I mean, wow. That's that. We have so much potential, so much ability when we're young that we waste on just playing around and having a good time and not really taking life seriously and not involving ourselves in spiritual responsibilities where we could make a difference. And uh, Timothy's really encouraged me. And he's not the only guy. I mean, can't you think of some other people in the, new, in the Bible that were really great servants of God when they were very young? Like... Jesus, absolutely. Joseph. Joseph was 17 when he got sold into slavery. David was very young when he killed Goliath. Yeah. Who else? Josiah was very young when he started seeking the Lord. He was a teenager. Daniel. Because, you remember Daniel in the lion's den? Do you remember, do you know how many years after Daniel was taken into captivity, the story of Daniel in the lion's den occurs? Like about 66 years later. Did you ever think of Daniel as a, you know, 80-year-old in the lion's den? But he, if he was 80 in the lion's den, that means he was 16 when he refused to eat the king's food. He may have even been younger than that. Uh, I mean, what I see in the Bible is age doesn't make any difference. It's not how old you are that makes you a servant of God. 
we can be a responsible, serious servant of God and make a difference in other people's lives at any age. So Paul said, I decided to be left alone at Athens. I wanted to send Timothy. I wanted him to be able to strengthen and encourage you. Because Paul was so worried about it. He just now now and, and again, strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. Paul's not worried about whether they're sick. I mean Paul probably would be worried if he knew they were sick. But he's really worried about how they are spiritually. You know, he's not sending them a nurse or somebody like he, he was really concerned about their faith. And especially in verse 3, what's he concerned about? And, and that that might disturb That might shake them. Comments and thoughts you've got on what we've been saying so far. I want you to really think about Paul's attitude. You know, keep that in your mind. This is a great passage, and it just shows you Paul's heart for these brethren. How much he loved them, and it shows you what his true concerns were. Um, so, uh, we will stop here, uh, but we will continue this, uh, Lord willing, tomorrow. And, uh, you know, you can, you can reflect a little bit on this. I, I really think this chapter 3 is just a great chapter, and uh, so hopefully that can help.